Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 55, Act 2, Shauna Melton, Calling in Your Why, recorded April 24th, 2022. All prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember the walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching RSU Podcast. This podcast is research recorded and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Hey, hey, y'all. We have surpassed 30,000 listens. Thanks so much for choosing this indie podcast. We absolutely love and appreciate you. Help us get to 40,000 listens by inviting your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. We can also be heard on any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head over to teachingrsg.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merch, and so much more. This past week, I attended the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable event with the New York Department of Education Chancellor, David Banks, talking about the importance of arts and arts education in our schools. This event was moderated by my friend, colleague, and past podcast guest, David King, who is the Director of Education at the Apollo Theater. The Chancellor spoke to a quote that he's made in the past, quote, the arts feed the soul, end quote. And he talked about how arts can support young learners express themselves as humans, and most essentially in regards to racial trauma or compounded trauma, racial trauma, trauma related to the pandemic, et cetera, um, to support getting what's inside of them out. And this leads me to where we pick up the second part of the conversation with Shauna um, as we continue to discuss processing grief on a personal level and then connect that back to how creating art can support that process. Um, that ultimately um, artists working in communities can be working with the individuals who we truly don't know what's happening directly in their lives, but we do know that something, (laughs) something is going on and that humans in general um, uh, are, 
are living with trauma. And so while we may not know the specificity, we know that we are also living with some sort of, um, you know, trauma or, or something that is needs to be processed. And that um, while we're not necessarily art therapists, that's not necessarily what we're talking about here, but the act of offering various structures for creative processes can provide a pathway for learners to channel whatever is happening in their hearts and minds into something that is expressive um, and can make meaning. So, you know, as I'm listening to this conversation, I just think, you know, Shauna is somebody that I would say wholly embodies being an artist and a learner to continue to strive and grow uh, as a human. Here is episode 55, act two, Shauna Melton, calling in your why. Thank you so much for, for pulling back and creating all that context, um, based off of my question. Um, as you were talking, I was, I, I've, I may have said this here, here, but I know I've said it to others that, um, I lost my mom in December of 2019. So a few months before the pandemic and that, um, that statement around grief is love that's lost direction is real, really real. Um, and I was, I was like, all of January and most of February, I felt detached from myself. And I'm, I'm somebody who I went, I started doing therapy when I lost my dad, which was, um, almost 14 years ago and, um, definitely felt untethered then. Um, and this was a, this was a completely different feeling, uh, where I literally did not feel like I understood who I was anymore because I lost this person. And I went on an artist retreat in the middle of February, um, where the weather was warm in Florida. And about, I was there for two weeks. And about halfway through the second week, I started to feel like me. And that the way I knew that was because I was telling a story and I was leaning in where like prior to that, after I'd been gone for a month and then gone, gone back to work and then went on this trip. But I was working for about six weeks and everything I had to like, I couldn't care. I couldn't because it was, it would just take too much energy. And so I was always sitting back and like, I don't know, you don't know me, but like when I'm in it, I'm like forward and I'm like very animated. (laughs) And so in the middle of this retreat, I'm talking to some fellow artists and, you know, we know about COVID, but it hasn't quite like the shutdown hasn't quite happened. And, we're, we're telling stories and I completely leaned in and then like, and then I was tired, but I was like, Oh, 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 I feel like I know, I know who this is now. I'm, I'm better. Right. I'm not better, but like I, I, I can recognize who I am. And, um, and then shortly after the pandemic started and the shutdown and everything was so stressful and I had COVID, <laughs> uh, but not, you know, not uh, a mild case. So I wasn't in the hospital, but, um, I just, I had this other kind of thing that was happening where it was nothing is as hard as when I lost my mom. Like this is hard. This shit's hard, but it's not as hard as having lost her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like when you're at your absolute lowest. And it was a point where you had, you were, even though it was a horrible thing to witness and experience, Mm. we needed a minute 
everybody in the whole world were like, well, you know, I'm a quilt, I'm a paint, I'm a read a book. I'm, you know, I mean, it was like this moment in time for the, even the first couple of months where we really understood we were overextended, you know, how deep that went. And then it shifted into, okay, but this is enough. (laughs) Let's, let's reevaluate. And it's like, it's true. You do, you feel like nothing i've look what i've survived and you know something worse could happen heaven forbid but you do know some something but i have no idea what that could be at this point and i don't want to know i know that was plenty (laughs) we don't want to do this again and for me i felt like i believe in my life even before this because i've been i've i've seen a lot of transition like even around 2001 my great-grandmother and my grandfather passed away within days of each other you know watching September 11th and you know like there's all kinds of things that I've witnessed and for some reason I thought yeah my grandmother had dementia she lived a whole year longer than they anticipated and I but I was so shocked that I was still devastated when it happened because I thought I had prepared myself, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, what does that even mean? Who taught us that? Nobody. I mean, yeah, that, that's what they say. You know what I hate? I hate like shows or movies where somebody passes away and they like, they show like a, like a, like a, it feels like a, a, a blip that they're grieving and then it's, that it's over. It's like, that's not how this works at all. Uh, at all. Um, but the idea of like finding, again going back to that statement about grief is love that has no direction because it was love that was directed towards a person and what i what i finally i think and i'm still processing is i was actually able to redirect that love back to myself like recognizing the unconditional love that my mom had for me and like thinking what if like if i don't have that who ha- who else would have that for me what about me? What about me? My aunt said to me one day, which really clicked. My when my grandmother was was in one of her worst points in dementia, she looked at me. She said, "You're going to be historic, Shana." And I was like, "Okay." And I know she believed it. It was almost like a prophecy. You know what I mean? And. I remember after she passed and I was going through all the things I was dealing with, my aunt said to me, she's like, you're not honoring her by not doing what your work. She would kick your ass. <laughs> Sorry for like, she, she would, <laughs> she would, if she knew that you were just being sad, that's not what she wanted for you. And I said, well, valid. But still, <laughs> you know, this is still hard, but it's true. Like, and that's why I have incorporated her into so much of what I do and so many of my conversations and talking about grief so openly because it, I can't have survived the way I was feeling and have that feeling be for nothing if, I, if I'm a writer, if I'm an artist, if, you know? Mm-hmm. It's this, my life has been turning my feelings into art. So why would I not do that (laughs) now? Yeah. 
And it's the same for you. Look where you found yourself again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at an artist retreat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Where I found myself was I, um, my community uh, event for my, my track was teaching. And I, I'd come back from teaching a group of middle school theater kids and I had a I that's where it was that's where it started where I was telling the story of like doing this activity and live with all these kids that I didn't know but this cute thing happened enough amazing thing happened and And that energy that buzz that you know you know the buzz that you get that's what was like recharging me yeah exactly and people saying I went through that too you know I lost my mom too and this is how I felt I, I lost my grandmother too and then all of a sudden you have people who have been what you've been through to talk to about it, even if it's for a minute, you know, it's not those people who needed you to be strong and just get over it or just deal with it or just whatever. It's people say, I've been there too. And this is how I felt. And then now you don't feel like an alien (laughs) anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, there's something about, uh, you keep mentioning all these women in your life, your mother, your grandmother, your great grandmother. I I feel like there's um, something inherent about um, all of these women in our lives, all these black women in our lives who, you know, from an external view might not have feel, felt like they were uh, strong. Um, like my mom's body was quite frail, but she it was very strong in spirit Um and what, yeah, like just one of the strongest people I, I felt like I knew and, and yet was unassuming and didn't always ha- was able to be vulnerable and didn't always have that confidence in herself. And I feel the same where I'm like, I know people see me as a strong person, but I'm, I'm vulnerable and I'm allowed to be. And I, I, I think that's important, like you said, to, to be putting out those, those, um, feelings and emotions out into the world to normalize that conversation um and to to sort of pull apart the like strong black woman trope (laughs) you know what i'm saying like but that that actually makes us stronger (laughs) i wrote something that i think is very important and i still have to i still have to get the courage to fully navigate it um but i was in a writer's group I'm in a writer's group that my friend runs. I run a writer's group, but this was a, a, a different one. And um, she has it in the mornings. And her prompt, her prompt was about like things you've been through that define who you are. And for some reason, it led me to the t- conversation about being the strong woman, right? Being the strong person. And <clears throat> I think people who call you like the strong person look at you and see you like knuckles to the ground and track runner position just about to like take off like she'll just hop right out of this but that's not what the strength that's not how the strength shows up for the strong person the strength is laying on the floor crying for a very long time the strength is going to church, not really wanting to talk to people, but sitting in the back because you need some other words than what's in your own head. The strength is sitting by the water for hours in your car crying and talking to God or whoever who will listen. The strength is um, talking yourself out of 
misery. That's where the, the strength isn't like I have on my cape. Let me just whoop. The strength is is it is hard as hell to be strong. The strength is isolating yourself because you know if you say too much or you're too involved, it'll be overwhelming. And the strength can be a year from now showing up again a, a lot better than how you left. But having been through a whole lot that nobody's seen, that's the strength. Like you're the strong one is not, this is going to hurt me. And then I'm just going to magically recover. You know, the strength is a journey. It's not a moment of just, okay, that's over. I'm good and keep it. That's not what that looks like for any of us. And so when we talk about that, it's, it's violent in a lot of ways to just say, you're strong, you'll be fine. Instead of really caring enough to, you, you know, everybody can't be present or there. You know, everybody doesn't have that capacity, but to even be generous enough to say, I know this isn't going to be easy, but if you need me, just call or dropping off a card <laughs> or, you know, something that doesn't just let, that doesn't make them feel left behind because they were sad. Yeah. I'm curious, I'm going to segue us a little bit. I'm curious about um, an art project that you are very proud of or most proud of. A few things come to mind. Um, definitely that Maya painting. Yeah. Um, I also have one called Must Be Heaven that has, I'm looking at it, that's why I'm looking up, but um, it has all black literature authors. Um, I've been, I don't paint famous people. That's not my thing, but <laughs> that's not my thing, but, um, the people who really do impact me and, um, have, um, influence on my life. I do like to document in art and, that Maya painting was actually part of, when I did it, it was around the time when Reverend Anderson was doing my afa, and she asked me if I would bring a painting in, and I said, I'll bring my Maya painting. So the first time that painting left the house, I brought it to church, and what I didn't know is I did the poem that I wrote for her, and I got a standing ovation, and that was already like, whoa, right? But then I didn't know Reverend Anderson had wrote a piece using all quotes from Maya Angelou, and so it was like maybe 15 different women in the church. Each one went up and touched the painting and said a different line from, <laughs> I, was, I was sitting in the pews like, oh God, it was, it was so emotional. And they each did a line or a, um, a saying from her and touched her and then walked around in circles. And it, it made sense as like a whole skit, but it was almost like they were blessing the painting. Um, so when I see this painting, I think about that all the time. And then um, I think my work with the Freeman houses, um, it's all, so I got involved with that, with, um, it was reimagining Little Liberia because the history is all oral or written. It's not, visual they don't have a lot of pictures and photographs and so the project was for us to reimagine um 
that time, that place, what it looked like, what they had. And so I created a work that documented the Underground Railroad from Long Island to Bridgeport and the release of the ancestors in that space. And that's um, on exhibit at the Housatonic Museum of Art. And I'm really proud of that because that for me goes into legacy um, and being part of telling that story. And lyrical voices. I don't give lyrical voices the credit it deserves, but it really shifted me. And I'm trying to be more intentional about talking about it because it shifted me, it elevated me, it taught me a lot in personal and artistic lessons. Um, it prepared me for a lot of spaces in speaking and hosting. And it, the community building is something that I don't know if I can ever match again. Um, and my writer's group. I love my writer's group. Those, they're dope. <laughs> Running around, my core group is awesome, but even just doing it in other places, it's never, it never fails to be like just a really powerful and insightful experience. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, you know, just go, I'm thinking about, you know, again, how we, how we met and under the circumstances of what we met, we were talking uh, very much about teaching artists and um, uh, the teaching artist sampler with the four determinants. I'm not going to be able to name all of them very well right now, but there was community building. There's, um, credentials and skill building, uh, equity and community, I think, um, as part of them that again, I'm, I didn't name them perfectly, but, um, I, I'm curious from your perspective as, as a community artist, as, um, a teaching artist, what are some issues that you would like to see addressed, um, as we continue to, um, you know, move forward with, with this field? Um, I think, I think I said it in that webinar, but it's something that has really been on my mind even before the pandemic, but definitely since is creating some kind of, or maybe it is the office of the arts, but some kind of way that um, teaching artists who are consistent can be insured, can be promoted, you know what I mean? So that they're not always having to start from scratch with every event that they do. So you don't always have to keep proving yourself so that in a situation where a pandemic shows up, right? Um, you know that you can get unemployment or you can get something that will help you survive it. Um, and it was, it was really awesome that they had that in place. Um, I know in Connecticut, if you're, they had um, money to help people who are like gig workers or contractual workers and things, but it's almost, it almost felt like 
anybody who does that could have, have access to it, even if they just started recently. But like me, I'm 20 years in. If, if I was, at least, if I was aligned with an organization that said, okay, if you do this many workshops per year, if you do this many community things per year, you can sustain you know, this insurance, you know what I mean? We're, we're talking about health insurance. Yeah, health, ins- health insurance, um, ways like sewing into something so that we can then be covered mm-hmm. if something were to happen. And it also says, well, you've been a teaching artist for mm-hmm. 20 years. If I were to go to a job with 20 years of accounting experience, that would count for a lot, right? Mm-hmm. But if I go to an organization and say, I've done it for this long, people who know your work will say, well, that's great. And I say, but anybody could say they've been doing it for that long because there's no real record or alignment with something other than your resume. You know what I mean? So it's some kind of structure that can even just serve as proof of your work that um, I know in, in the document that was shared, she talked about, you know, learn, understanding your value and like organizations understanding your value. But if you were aligned with, with some kind of core place that really kept a record and showed that you were part of the community in this way for this long doing, having these achievements, um, and it wasn't just you saying it like a backer, it would look very different when you go into a place and have your, cause that's what they do. Like they appraise what your work, <laughs> what your work is worth. But with artists, it's solely based on what we say we do. And there's a lot of people who aren't honest. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people who don't, who don't, um, don't do the, the level of work that a lot of our other artists do. And it doesn't make, mean that their efforts are pointless but when you're somebody who's sewn into the community who's done community service who does activism who does um workshops and facilitating and hosting you shouldn't have to have a conversation about somebody having done less but you should take what they're getting you know what i mean and so there has to be a way and when you look at the pandemic and how many um artists get sick and don't have access to the help they need when you look at even like oil painters there's a lot of oil painters who get sick from fumes and um there's they get skin rashes and breathing problems there's all this stuff isn't safe you know what i mean but it's their medium and so what does that look like financially when you don't feel well when you're sick and you don't you can't say well i've put in 20 years other than you know flyers and events and exhibits but people don't see the real tedious work that goes behind it. If we could get the state to say, you're an artist, this is how long you've been being, you've been active as a teaching artist. And here are some benefits because you sew in the community. And then that gives back. So like, these are the people they could call on to do workshops for people who are homeschooling. You know, these are the people you could call on um, if they need art workshops for kids. And it has to be on Zoom because people can't leave. These are the people who you have in place for like helping with commercials. You know what I mean? You have them in place. And so you're, they're already aligned with you. They're doing the work. And then these are the ways they can grow old and not need to leave. So many artists leave cities because 
they've run out of opportunities or they don't want to teach anymore. They want to, you know, do more exhibits. They want to, and they have to go to places that fit them. But if there's benefits to being in this place, if there's benefits to growing in this place, like actually having benefits, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. actually being able to sow into a retirement mm -hmm. that changes how quickly you'll shift out. And, and it's a benefit to the city. Cities make so much money off of artists having lived there when they're dead. So into us while we're alive. Wow. Wow. So I so I think I would have heard in, in there was was health healthcare benefits, unemployment benefits, retirement benefits. And then the um how to let um the acknowledgement of years worked and experience that would su potentially support um, pay negotiations, right? Those kinds of things about being valued for the, the experienced uh, skills that one has. Because it's a viable career if the state would make it viable right. or if a, if a company would make it viable. You know what I mean? Do you think that it, do you think that it's on, it, this should be on a state level, a federal level or organization by organization level? I think any of the three are, are a good start. Mm -hmm. I think I think state would be ideal. Um, mm -hmm. Federal, as the federal encompasses all of the governments, right? Um, yes and no, because there is a separate. I some I, like I I'm not like super civics minded, but like there are state laws and then there are federal laws. The state has to follow the federal laws. Um, but there can be other kinds of laws that are specific to each state. The only reason I'm I'm kind of not sure about that answer is because I, I do, I'm not thinking about just Connecticut. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel I like it like, should be like an across the board thing. Yeah. Um, but I think there should be some core things that the state, state helps with. Mm -hmm. When it comes to something as across the board important, as arts, I think people should value the arts mm -hmm. because if you know, if there's anything you know now more than ever is that it's where people look, yep. you know, for help in yeah. the time of crisis. And so even if you look at the people in Ukraine, you got people singing and doing music and using that as healing for people who are escaping bombings, you know what I mean? Like these are things that people always turn to in times of chaos. So honor that, like, put these people in position to always be ready for times like that because mm -hmm. you don't know when they're coming. So if you can create a sustainable experience for artists to live as artists, it's an investment in the culture. The Teaching Artists Guild had um, created a teaching artist map mapping um, document uh, or, or database. So I don't know how but I don't think that's tied to anything like what you're talking about. It could, it could be, it could be an interesting, like, let's start with, you know, how much, how many folks are in this database and is there a world where we could be building it further and then connecting it to these benefit ideas and what could that look like? Because I, the big thing that I think, especially around uh, healthcare benefits is so much of what, 
the system, the healthcare system is set up to do is, you know, to make money for other people. Um, one, two, uh, it's based off of how many hours you've worked. So it's based off of your, like, instead of being a human, just be, like existing, it's based off of like your output and what you produce. Yeah, that's why I think you should have, you should be required to do maybe five workshops a year, five presentations well, a year. Well, part of, part of, yeah, I know I hear you, but, but part of what I would love is to try and figure out how to, to disconnect the hours work to get the benefits. I don't know. I don't know how to do that, but that is that is something I'm very very <laughs> interested in. Um, yeah. But yes, absolutely. I, I uh, yes, like there's a question around guaranteed work and work hours, so that if if it does have to be tied, like determining what the what the threshold is for the benefits at a reasonable uh, amount, you know, because things can fluctuate over time for artists, you know, especially if it's on an organizational level. I think if it if it's on a overall level if it's on the state level that's a thing i think that's different because then if you're working for several different organizations doing different kinds of projects the amount of hours can add up right but if it's on an organizational level that's going to be a little bit more challenging in my opinion that's why i say there needs to be some kind of government core Mm -hmm. structure instead of a bunch of different places so because those are the places that would bring you in but Mm -hmm. that's see that's the problem now is like you have to deal with so many places that to bring you in, which is why you're starting from ground zero all the time. Right. But if you have the state behind you, they're bringing you in from that. And you never lose your, your elevation because you're with that one, I don't want to say company, but because you're with the state, mm-hmm. you can never be knocked back down because there's proof that you've consistently been there. Whereas if I go to one organization to another where I go in new each time. Mm-hmm. But if this is this is who she is, this is what she does, and we back her, right? Mm-hmm. I can still go into these places, but I don't always have to start from as a newbie. Gotcha. You know, I hear you. The only the, the where my brain starts to go to with that though is, you know, because it's government and bureaucracy. You know, I'm thinking about teachers and how they have to be certified and what that looks like. So like, what's the, is, if we were to go down that state route, you know, what's the equivalent is, is I think that they would try to create that, you know what I mean? So that there's, um, standards placed on the work. Yeah. But there should be standards anyway, I think. Yeah. Necessarily, yeah. not necessarily like. A, a certain degree because a lot of artists I know is that's not always but certain amount of hours you know yeah. what I mean? yeah. a certain amount of um, proof that you can create a lesson plan and proof that you have a structure for a presentation yeah. you might need because like even to get certified in other in other things you have to like I'm, I do the Dr. King six principles of nonviolence Kingian yeah. nonviolence um, presentations and in order to get certified I had to create a lesson plan for each um, principle you know what I mean I had to show that I can do a 20-minute presentation on a um, principle with a full structure I had to pass an exam you know what I mean there's nothing wrong with that 
if it means on the outcome, now I'm certified and I can go into these places and it's gonna benefit me. I think people would be okay with that if you knew that on the other side of this, you'd have access to benefits in retirement. And, you know what I mean? There's, and, and, a, and a backing from your state. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily a degree program, but it's proof that you can be an art educator and will and have done the work. I don't, I think that's fair. You're a catalyst for, for action. Do you see yourself like that? A catalyst for action. I mean, I'll take it. I'm not opposed. <laughs> I'm not opposed to that description at all. <laughs> but I, I do. I, I do. I think. I don't know. There's things that are overwhelming. Like I look at Ukraine and I can't fix that as much as I'd like to. You know, I look at COVID and I can't fix that. I look at um, brutality and the death of innocent people. And I have, it's such a huge, I don't know if I could fix it, but I, I can put little things in place that help it. You know what I mean? I can talk about it in my art. I can go to be outspoken about why it hurts and, and challenges and impacts us as a globe. Um, you know, I can find ways to get food to people. I can I can do little things. I can't fix everything, but little things add up. Yeah. And I feel like if a lot of people do little things, it turns into a big thing. But doing nothing <laughs> doesn't do... It doesn't do nothing. <laughs> nothing from nothing leaves nothing. I'm curious if you have any, any things that you want to learn about me or questions for me. Like 10,000 things. <laughs> I do want to acknowledge that, you know, you talked about your mom and your dad transitioning and I, I didn't want to interrupt your thought pattern, but I do want to honor that. And thank you for sharing that because I know that's vulnerable um, and recent. Um, and I also, I, I would say like of all the questions you asked me, what would you want to be asked out of those questions? And like, how would you answer it? Oh my, I don't even remember what I asked you. Um, let's see. Um, oh, you know, I think something that I asked you that is not written here is um, what kind of like pro art projects you're proud of. I don't think I've asked other people that question before, so I should jot that down. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I explained that I'm a, I'm a theater practitioner and um, I have my own theater company that has been slightly dormant in the last couple of years, but I'm very proud of the work that's been created with that group. It's called The Space Between. Um, and... I currently work as a um, as part of the New York City uh, queer playback theater. And I've just learned what playback theater is in the last, it, actually during the pandemic, I started going to open. It's called um, New York City uh, New York City queer playback theater, and playback theater itself is is a worldwide phenomena of Im improvised. Um, uh, playing back of, of audience members' stories. So they're 
the audience or members of the audience are invited to tell a story that is based off of a theme or a question or something that they'd like to share. Um, the performer, there's somebody who's like conducting or, or listening specifically to the story and then sort of pulls out some threads and, and it's always mostly about like, yes, let's, let's understand the, the actual like events that happen in the story, but also the emotional quality of the, of the teller. Um, and then the perfor- performers are selected from the ensemble to then play back that theater using a particular improv, improv, uh, form. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a big lesson in like deep, deep listening having empathy and and the idea of of using theater as a way to gift back or enact the story that you were vulnerable enough to to share um and that's been really excited i i've been like i said i've been doing that for the pandemic i would say about a year and a half and we've done several performances we just had one last week and i've been really really proud to be a part of that um, ensemble part of that work and and to do to take my theater skills and be in service of of somebody else's story has been really quite thrilling it's really intentionally having that experience where somebody else feels seen mm-hmm. and heard yeah and and you know i feel like in in this time this is this is a way it's all been over zoom too so this is a way to be able to show someone or have somebody feel seen and that you're a part of that in some small way um, is quite meaningful. There are a couple other things, but those those are things that right now are, are you know, I have a lot of other projects that I, that I do. And obviously I do a lot of work um, uh, in my full-time job at the New 42. Um, but in terms of being an artist, these are the things that I, that bring me a lot of pride. Um, and then this podcast is, is like my child too, very much and cared for very deeply by me and, um, and the audience. I mean, I, I went to that conference, I brought my little postcards and put it on (laughs) the table so people could get more listeners. And one of the people who were working the event was like, you don't know me, but I'm a listener. And I just want to thank you so much for, you know, put all the care that you do to put out these stories and these, you know, oral histories and whatnot. And I was just like, Oh, Oh yes. That, thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm so happy. Um, and I, I appreciate when people, you know, say things like that. <laughs> yeah. Affirm you. I would love to experience that um, storytelling talking, talk back. Um, it's called Playback Theater, and we'll have another performance. I'll, I'll add you to my little email f- list when we have our – it's not defined yet, but we're going to have a performance during Pride Month, so sometime in June. Um, it's it's good. I, the, I, it's funny, though. I, um, I can't remember what, what my first performance was. I, I want to say it was sometime – oh, no, it was last year – and I told a few people, but I didn't like do a big blast. <laughs> and then for this round, I was like, you know, what? I'm going to tell more people. I think this is good. So my cousin came and that was really exciting. A few other people that I knew came and that I like, I was like, Ooh, this is exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. And people come from around the globe. Like there were people there from Germany, Australia, India, 
it's wild. Like that's the kind of beautiful thing about zoom too, is that you could have a 7 PM performance, uh, you know, Eastern standard time, but everybody can come or anybody could come. It expands your reach. I just did a workshop Mm -hmm. for, um, expert experts who work with journaling. I was brought in because of my writers group and it was in Romania. I was like, before this, how was I going to get to Romania? (laughs) And she had people on there from all over the world. It it was so cool. That's why people keep saying we're sick of Zoom, but I'm like, I welcome it because it it just expands your reach so much. You know, thank you for saying that. I was, I had this thought a couple of maybe last week or a couple of days ago, my dad took a trip in 1980. My dad took a trip to through, like took a summer trip to Europe and made all these friends and had pen pals and friends that he would write to and stay in contact. So, you know, long, long days before Facebook and whatnot. And I was thinking, I remember thinking then as a kid being like, how do you know these people in England and in Prague and in wherever? Um, and how cool is that? Cause I don't even know where those places are. And now I have, you know, friends and colleagues and listeners who are literally listening from all places, including Russia. Um, but like listening around, around the world to me, what? And to the, the beautiful guests that I have. And, and I'm also because of zoom able to have these connections with people much more tangibly, um, and social media much more tangibly. Um, and I just never, I don't think I ever thought that that would be, this would be my life as a kid when I was a kid or that I would have this kind of global engagement. Yeah. Or impact. Mm-hmm. When I'm when my writers group before COVID, before pandemic, um, I do it at this gallery and um, City Lights Gallery here. And then like I would go into libraries and community centers and things, but regularly that's who sponsors my group. And even if you go on the Zoom now, there's people in Wisconsin and California and Brooklyn and all these different places. Like even, even if tomorrow I said, we're going back to normal, whatever that is, right? I couldn't do it because so many people who are regularly there are from, I couldn't take that away from them and feel okay. So like, I just, I people saying they're sick of Zoom, I'm just like, get over it. Cause honestly, I love being able to expand my reach like that. And like you said, who imagined that, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. I went a few years ago, I went to Oprah's Life You Want tour and she was talking about things she did as a child that foreshadowed things that she would become as an adult, right? Mm -hmm. Like talking, they always tell you, um, stay out of grown folks conversation, but she loved grown folks conversation, right? And like, look where that got her. And I remember when I was a kid, I would get all the chairs in our apartment and line them up in rows in front of my bed. And then I would put like cabbage patch dolls and Barbies and everyone. They all had a seat and don't let company come because you're stuck in my room now. And like I would, <laughs> they would be my audience and I would stand on my bed and I had a rainbow bright record and you sing somewhere over the rainbow. My poor cat would run. I was ah, just <laughs> but. <laughs> But now, foreshadowing, right? I have rows of chairs with people lined up. I ain't singing though, but you you don't want that smoke, but I'll do a poem for you any day. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I've created spaces like I was doing then as an adult. So it's like, I wonder if on some level you had things 
as a kid that you did that foreshadows yeah what you do now oh yeah de- I de- definitely definitely um i used to pretend that i was on uh that i was in a show i used to pretend like my playtime by myself was i'm in a show and we're um having all sorts of shenanigans backstage or i'm on a movie set and we're having all sorts of shenanigans while waiting to film <laughs> yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and then i also you know was like produced shows in my backyard uh yeah and would have like little shows and skits that i would do for my family on sunday nights sometimes i would get too too shy and then i wouldn't do it or i'd just like be bolt belting out whatever whatever i was listening to on my cassette tape or cds yep oh yeah and and i and in high school i took a film and television class and I mean, this isn't film, but this is media, and yeah. If you if there were podcasts, then it would have been a podcast, film, and television. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Radio, you know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's all it's all been in us. Mm-hmm. It just had to take its journey to come out. Shana, this has been really lovely. It has. I'm so thankful you invited me. I'm so thankful. And thank you for for seeing me and hearing me that day. You never know going into those things what they're going to be like, but everybody was awesome. But I definitely had that moment where like, oh, she's going to be my friend. Look at that hair. (laughs) It's on. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah. As soon as I saw you too, I was like, oh, I'm loving everything about what's happening here. Everything. Um, but yes, yeah, so let's absolutely stay in touch. I will, I will share, you know, my upcoming shows and um, obviously when this gets published, we'll be in touch, but yeah, let's stay in touch and let, let's, I'm, I'm curious about like, yeah, furthering the conversation, whether it's with myself or with others around grief mourning and love as as a as a vehicle for love that's what i mean i love that conversation yeah i love that i would definitely be part of it if you did it Mm -hmm. because i think it's so important especially right now yeah yeah and i have you know there's grief that can come up about like little things like you know offending somebody and feeling bad about it you know what I mean? Like it could be like smaller than losing somebody. I'm trying to find this book I was reading. Um, when things fall apart, heart mm. advice for difficult times by I'm probably gonna say this wrong, but Pima Pema Chaudron. I was I was reading this book. And you see, I'm almost done. And I stopped because it got to be a lot in my heart, but. She was saying how we grieve little things all the way to big things, mm-hmm. right? And it's the little things, I'm paraphrasing. What is going on in the world? Um, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but it's the little things. If we allow ourselves to grieve the little things, those that grief prepares us for grieving the big things, right? Mm-hmm. And so something like losing a sock, 
right? But that's your favorite sock. It supported the middle of your foot and it felt good. And now you only, and how did your apartment eat the sock? And so we just throw the other sock away and say, oh, well, I'll find new socks. But there's this part of you, I know in me, that is like, but how am I gonna find that other sock? Like, <laughs> it was really, and I wore it here and I wore it there. And now I only have one. And like, you do have that moment, I do. And, but allowing yourself that moment, allowing yourself to say goodbye to the sock, allowing yourself to give thanks for the sock, right? It seems so silly, but it's not because that is training you to say, well, I really had good times with my mom. I really had good times with my grandmother. I really enjoyed when she made Easter dinner and the, the geese in her house and you know how she loved to sew. I really, I love those things, but now I have to figure out a way to live differently. Mm -hmm. Not without, but differently, yeah. you know? And those small things prepare you for the larger thing. It's practice. It's a, it's a practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you lose, a, you lose your favorite earring, right? <laughs> and that's, that, that, that's a, that's a mm, you know? But we just, well, I just have to find, we just try to, we keep convincing ourselves that we don't care. And I feel like that's what adulthood becomes like these series of events that you're just convincing yourself it's okay it's all right I'll be okay I don't need it and it's not you know but if we honor I'm not saying dwell on the sock for 20 years but give yourself 20 minutes yeah like yo that's messed up I love my sock but isn't it like isn't see I, I love what you just said that the adulthood is about convincing yourself that you don't care as opposed to embracing the fact that we do. Mm -hmm. We could actually be stronger if we cared and we talked about it and normalized that. We could be stronger together, stronger apart, you know, individually and together in community. I'm embracing that a lot. Now I have the sirens. <laughs> Sunday I don't know yeah it is it's it's so it's so important you know these things we're not supposed to be attached to things but the thing things carry our history you know what I mean they we had for one of the ma'afas it was the journey of shoes and everybody had to bring a pair of shoes that they lived through an event in their life and and the whole church North X was full, like a pile of shoes all almost to the ceiling. Everybody has a journey in shoes, but if we lose a shoe, we're like, well, I'll just get a new pair. You know what I mean? But there, there should be a moment where you're like, oh, I left that relationship in those shoes. I left, you know, I left home and I moved in out on my own in those shoes. I did, they, they all have a thing. And, you know, you can't live your life dwelling in the past. I'm not saying that, but you do honor, take a moment to honor that there is some sadness with it. It's very vulnerable. We don't like being vulnerable. I know I don't like it, but it's a necessary, I don't want to say evil, but it's, it's a necessary. It's necessary. Thing. It is necessary to be vulnerable. And it is, as, as we talked about earlier, like that's actually being vulnerable is actually what makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that writer's group I was telling, it's called Sunrise Scribe that my friend does. We were talking about that the other day, how 
you know, a, a child, you ever, you ever hear, you have, I know you have, cause we all heard it. Like when a child has a toy and then some other kid tries to play with it and they're like, that's mine. You can't play with my toy. That, you know, that belongs to me. And you always teach kids to share, share. That's not, don't be selfish. Just, but then what she said, Christine, what she said in that group and I never considered is that that is vulnerable taking ownership of something, you know what I mean? And calling it yours and not wanting other, having the setting boundaries, but we always teach kids, well, share, be kind and don't. And sometimes another way to look at it is that as it being vulnerable, you know, it's like, I'm, I, we don't want to call things ours, good or bad. We just want it to be in the world. And, but that's not always how it is. That's your sock. That's your earring. It's your mother. It's my grandmother. We call the thing a thing and, <laughs> and, and let it be what it is and be sad when it's not in the formation that we're used to it being in or in our house or being present the way we're used to. And we can be sad because it's gone and we can grieve because it's gone and we can heal because that's what our body is inclined to do eventually, <laughs> right? And then we have to learn how to navigate the world again without that thing, that person, and grow. But, you know, for me, stagnation and stillness and doing nothing is not an option. For some people, people die with the people. You know, some people can't live without each other. Some people, you know, go through years of suffering because they can't let go. And I just don't want that to be my story and if I can do something to change that because it's easy it would be so easy to just say you know what forget it <laughs> you know what I mean but that's not an option that I for me that's not an option and I don't judge people if it is for them but for me it's not I got too much work to do my grandmother said I was going to be historic and I'm sitting here being bootleg it's <laughs> <laughs> I can't really live with that. So I think your grandmother's right. I hope she is. It would be pretty cool. It would be really cool. Thank you for listening to episode 55, Act 2 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Shauna Melton, calling in your why. Join us next time for a conversation with James Horton. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. John Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.